Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. If you're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player, Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and thanks so much for joining me for episode number 198. Now I am super excited to present my conversation with Guthrie Govan, easily and deservedly one of the most celebrated guitar voices of the modern era. Now if you've heard Guthrie play with uh, his band The Aristocrats or his, in his solo mode, uh, with Stephen Wilson, Asia, Hans Zimmer, et al. You know he's an unbelievable player with such a unique voice. I had a great time speaking with Guthrie. At the moment, he's on the road with Hans Zimmer. We spoke about his relationship with the legendary film composer, both in uh, arena and concert tours and in the studio putting down tracks for uh, Zimmer's film scores. We get to discuss the Aristocrats, who will be back on the road shortly in 2022 as well. Of course, that is Guthrie's band with the amazing Marco Miniman and Brian Bella, and that band is just astounding. We had a good time talking also about the latest Charvel Guthrie Govern signature model. It's been released in the last couple of weeks, and we have time for some listener questions as well, which were answered with incredible thoughtfulness and consideration. If you've ever heard Guthrie interviewed or read any of his interviews in print, you'll know he's incredibly articulate and well-measured and really one of the one of the great thinkers in modern guitar as well, I would, I would suggest. So that's what we're about to jump into. Let's go straight there now, my conversation with Guthrie Govan. Greetings. Greetings. Hello, Guthrie. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Mate, thank you so much for your time. Um, especially, I think you've got a couple of days off. Uh, what can I tell you? We're in Dublin. Nice. St. Patrick's Day was yesterday, and we're in a big <laughs> band bubble. So anything that distracts me from the, temp- the siren song of getting out there and mingling outside the bubble, I welcome any such distractions. <laughs> That's a great situation. Very well, good. Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> Hey, let's um, let's start with uh, talk about Hans Zimmer then, because uh, yeah, obviously touring with with Hans. I think this is one of the first big, major tours in Europe, post you know a lot of the lockdowns of the last two years. If I'm if I'm getting my dates right, um, it must be fun to be back out on the road. It really is, uh, and what a dramatic way to get back on the road. No more clambering into a white transit van. <laughs> was straight into this operation with something like 18 trucks and nine wow. tour buses or something like that. So no messing around, right back in at the deep end. And 
I have to say, obviously, it's it's great to be able to get out there and make some noise again and just uh, re-establish those kind of connections that you get with fellow band members and also with crowds. But the thing that's made it extra special is obviously we have to be that little bit careful. Um, if, if one person in this operation tests positive, it, the wheels come off the whole thing. Yeah. So we're all having to be a little extra vigilant so there's less of the uh, extracurricular kind of fun stuff where you explore every city that's on the itinerary and we're much more focused on like being this circle of musicians and like bubble preservation protocol is everything um and what that's reinforced for me is that really is enough it's just great to be able to play music with people and play music to people everything else is a pleasant luxury but it's not necessary that's so yeah, so far so good. Very cool. The um, the Hans Zimmer gig you've been you've been working with him for a few years now, um, both on the road and 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 doing film scores. How how did that come about in the first place? Uh, the the same way a lot of his connections come about. He's a big fan of scouring YouTube until five in the morning, just looking for <laughs> weirdos. Um, so. In my case, he was scouring YouTube at five in the morning, looking for a specific kind of weirdo who could play slide guitar in an unusual way. Okay. Uh, he was just figuring out how to put together the first version of the Hans Zimmer live tour. Uh, he didn't really have a band yet. And one of the things he wanted to play as part of the set was the, the main theme from Thelma and Louise. Mm -hmm. um, so he was looking for a, a guitar player who could handle a slide melody, but maybe reinvent it somehow. So he stumbled upon a demo video of me just playing fretless and yeah. thought, okay, that's mental. <laughs> I'll call this guy. So he sent me a Facebook message and I didn't believe it was him because why would Hans Zimmer yeah, contact sure. me? Well, <laughs> So I think I replied something along the lines of bullshit. We both know you're not Hans Zimmer. Who are you really and what do you want? <laughs> so it's really fortunate that he managed to persuade me he was the, the real deal. Mm -hmm. And then the rest slowly wrote itself. Uh, for the first few years, I was mostly the guy who would go out on the road and just try and invent guitar parts for these great pieces of music that yeah, yeah. some would argue don't need guitar parts. And then gradually I found myself more and more involved in recording on the actual scores. So the experience of like playing the live set now, having actually played on a few score albums and some of that stuff is actually in the set that's a different feeling to just being presented with things like here's the score from gladiator or pirates of the caribbean and i'm listening to it thinking i'm not hearing a whole lot of overdriven martial on this and i don't know <laughs> if it needs it that's great so the, the challenges have changed over the years that's cool so when you're when you're working on a film score is he is he writing parts for you or have you got um, is there much freedom to improvise or do you collaborate? Because I know Hans, I think, uh, I think I'm paraphrasing, but he's a frustrated rock guitarist in a film composer's body. I think there's some truth in that. He might be kind of exaggerating that for effect, but there's definitely <laughs> a core of reality in that. Yeah. And anyone who sees this new live show will definitely get that sense that... Uh, there's a real rock mentality. There's a real more is more thing uh -huh, uh -huh. about it. It's not just an orchestra with a, a token guy with a strap buried sure, in the corner. Sure. It's, it's more rock and roll than a lot of people would think. Um, 
But in terms of how, how I would work with hands from some of that stuff, occasionally there will be a written part and it will be like, can you double what the cello is doing or something like that? In which case the creativity is, can you dial in a sound on your axe effects or whatever that will actually sit in this dense mix? And sometimes there isn't a part. He just says, um, when I was recording on one of the cues for the film June, for instance, he just said, can you find a sound that's like sand? He didn't really care what the notes were. He just wanted a guitar noise that somehow evoked sand. That's great. I can't even remember how I did it. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty out there challenge, but I, I like being stretched like that. That's cool. The Dune soundtrack's really cool in that there's a lot of um, ambient tracks and uh, a lot more electronic stuff than, say, The Lion King or you know some other... Um, uh, iconic Hans Zimmer track. So uh, I was trying to work out what is guitar in this because there's some really um, interesting... You will never things. guess. Yeah, really. <laughs> Half of it, you will just not identify it as a guitar. <laughs> Hopefully you'll identify some of it as sand. Okay. But there's okay. a lot of fretless stuff on that. There was a lot of kind of octavers and ebos and scraping strings and cool. just being weird. Awesome. Uh, and when when you hear the bagpipes when they land on the new planet. Uh-huh. Um, the first bit of bagpipes you hear is actually me. Okay, nice. And it even fooled me when I went to see the film. <laughs> I'd kind of forgotten. I thought maybe it was buried in the background somewhere. But apparently, yeah, the first several bars were it's just the lone bagpipes. Oh, that's great. Um, that's, that's about 20 tracks of guitar that I sent to Hans. Okay, and very cool. Stack them all up and run them through kind of monophonic synths and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You can get eerily close nice you are you running um you mentioned axe effects i guess with a large orchestra you're probably trying to keep a stage quiet are you running uh the axe effects for for the live shows yeah for the earlier shows i was using kemper mostly because everyone else had a kemper even the cellist had a kemper so so i thought okay new operation don't make any waves just get with the program and use what everyone else is using and then if something goes wrong the crew will already have read the manual. But the truth is, I just know my way around an Axe FX sure. a lot more intimately. Mm -hmm. um, the way my brain works, I can map it onto my, the, the structure of how you, you build an Axe FX patch. So for this tour, I thought, well, I should bring a little slice of home with me. I, I've been, I've spent two years kind of locked in an apartment with yeah. this thing. Yeah, okay. I know how to operate it now. Yep, yep. Nice. If something goes wrong, I'll know how to fix it. Sure. What do you um, what do you take from the Hans Zimmer experience? Has anything informed your your arranging or your composition or even your guitar playing that you take into your other gigs? Yeah, I think what one of the things that happens when you when you get a new field of musical endeavor like that, it just it expands your imagination. Because when, when I'm working with Hans, I have to be a different version of me that nobody else has really needed mm. for anything. So it's kind of a learning curve. It's like, what can I do in that character? And it's made me think differently about the kind of sound that it's okay to try and make. Mm. It's definitely encouraged me to get a lot better at the more sound design aspects of being a guitar player. And it's encouraged me to do something I've always wanted to do, which is not think like a guitar at all 
I mean, the guitar will always be my typewriter. That's my interface with the whole world of music. I can't operate any other machine with any proficiency. But guitar, I kind of know to some extent. So it's like, how can I use my knowledge of the topology of the fretboard and couple it with these ideas about how to make weird noises? Um, once you've found that kind of new vocabulary, it stays with you. And it doesn't mean you use it all the time in the rest of your musical life, but when there's an opportunity to use it, you're more likely to spot it as an opportunity because those reflexes are there. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's very cool. Well, speaking about other opportunities, uh, can we talk about the aristocrats? Because you guys will be back on the road uh, later this year. And again, the first time since, uh, I think, 2020 um, on your defrost tour in, in North America. Um, yeah. That Again, that must be super exciting. I think the last, the last time we heard from you guys was um, when the Freeze album came out. Uh, yeah. In the last uh, gasps of live music of 2020 for a lot of for yeah. a lot of people so um, I have to say that was that was an insane time yeah for us we were on tour in Europe we were in a different city every day and suddenly this started to creep up on the news it's like oh, there's some kind of weird disease mm -hmm. cropping up here and there is that like, okay what do we do to respond to this and I remember one day we were in the middle of Italy driving north and we we discovered this thing is completely out of troll out of control in the north of Italy. The place you're driving towards is a place you should not be driving towards oh, yeah. right now. Yeah. But it's, it's hard to know in those early stages. Nobody had figured out anything about the virus yet. And we were trying to be safe and sensible and all of that. Yeah. And that, the virus basically chased us across several borders. Okay. I think we got out of Italy just before Italy closed its borders down. Uh, so, like the, the title of the album Freeze obviously works on a number of levels. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you recorded that in Spain, I think. Was that the, the last? Uh, yeah, the last parts of that tour. Well, we we recorded a surprising amount of that tour. Just, we we ended up with an intimidating amount of hard drives full okay. of multi tracks yep. for the bulk of the shows. <laughs> so we never set out specifically to make a live in Spain album. It's more that during lockdown, suddenly we had a whole lot of free time at our disposal and we had the luxury of going through more alternate versions of each song than we would have had okay. if we still had normal lives going on at the same time. Sure, sure. So the kind of sifting process was definitely a little more detailed. And it just, for whatever reason, there seemed to be a, a patch in the middle of our tour itinerary where coincidentally we were in Spain and I guess we were gig fit and firing all on all cylinders, but we weren't weary of the road thing yet. So it was kind of the perfect time in the tour. And I think that's why all of that stuff coincidentally was recorded in Spain. It just happened that Spain is where we were when we reached this ideal point in the touring uh -huh. kind of routine. Yeah. It's like we're fully dialed in now, but we're still enjoying it. Yeah, that's the perfect uh, the perfect perfect storm to to commit to yeah. what the live album will be, I guess. And you'll be, um, I guess, you're touring those tracks. I've read also you've got some new material you want to release on the road. I read that on your website, you guys are hinting at a collaboration that is one year in the making. Um, but are there any clues on that that you can add? Do we um, see any of that on the tour? You. 
I don't want to say the wrong thing okay. um, because it might it might be like telling everyone what they're getting for Christmas. Sure. We did come up with something creative that we could do okay. during lockdown, and it's something we've never done before. And I don't think anyone in our field has done anything quite like it before. Okay. But I'd rather kind of keep it as a surprise, and all all will be revealed soon sure, enough. Sure. Is there a time um, frame for for this? Um, we're hoping it should be ready for the big reveal when we start our US tour. Okay. All right. Yeah. Stay tuned. But I hope people like this mysterious thing we've been doing. <laughs> but the the tour will be everything you read about on the net. We wanted it to be a mixture of old stuff and new stuff okay. and some stuff that's so new that not only has the crowd not heard it yet, but as we speak, we haven't heard it yet. <laughs> So we decided to push ourselves so that getting back on the road would feel more like rekindling that energy of when we first started the band and we had no material. All we knew was we had this exciting energy between the three of us and we were trying to figure out like, how can we do something with this? So we're kind of picking up from the, the spirit of how we started. I think that's the uh, idea of it. This episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally Smith College of Music. I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cup. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. Charvel have just launched, I think in the last month or so, as we speak, the latest iteration of the GG signature based on a San Dimas, but with a lot of Guthrie twists. Uh, must be exciting to have a, a new interface in your hands. It is. Um, the, the prototype for that newest iteration actually turned out to be my main tour guitar for the, the hand stuff that I'm doing at the moment. It's kind of being used for a good 75% of the set. Um, what else can I tell you about it? It's made in Japan instead of the US. It's and the the idea was to make something that was a a new member of the GG family, but b something which could be more affordable without actually compromising on the quality of the original US ones. So we had, we tweaked a few little things, but in, in essence, the spirit of the guitar is the same as the spirit of its siblings. Um, I think it was actually meant to be released about six months ago, but like most things in the world, um, sure. supply issues were encountered. So it's kind of extra exciting that it's actually getting out there now and people will be able to try this thing and hopefully like it. Yeah, cool. What, when you say there were some little tweaks from the, from the US ones, what's, what's different on, on this latest model? Well, the, 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 the basic premise was, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. And when we designed the original kind of US incarnations, we spent about two years figuring out everything we liked and everything we didn't like. So it would make no sense to kind of reinvent any wheels there. Sure. So the, the essence of the guitar is much the same. Um, what's different? There's no tremolo no on the back. That was the one feature we thought we could take away without actually 
robbing the guitar of anything. It's like in reality, some people like to have a tremolo note. They could buy one and install it themselves in an hour. Yes, yeah. For other people who don't need a tremolo, why make them pay for it? It was yep. more that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, the body wood combination is slightly different. It's basswood with an ash top instead of basswood with a flame maple top. So it doesn't look quite as luxurious. It's more of a slightly more sober finish. And we added a sunburst to it because it, it occurred to me, it's weird. I've never had a signature guitar with any paint on it. True, yeah. And part of the my kind of rationale behind the way that guitar is was I wanted it to be a mixture of, kind of vintage things and modern things. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to feel like something from a spaceship. I just yeah. wanted it to feel like a classic guitar, but perfected. It looks awesome. It's it's really interesting seeing it with a with a finish and and the sunburst as as you say. Um, the roasted maple neck is there. When when your first Charvels came out, um, and you're you're using the roasted maple, it wasn't such a, a popular thing to do. But now they seem to be everywhere. But uh, definitely, I think you're yeah. one of the pioneers to spread the word on that. Well, I'm happy to spread the word. I can't take any of the credit for it. It's just sure. a great <laughs> idea. Uh, Everything about roasted maple seems to work a little bit better for a guitar neck than unroasted. It's a little bit lighter, it resonates a bit more, uh, and it's stable. Uh, I, I have such a strange life. I'm hoping this strange life will return ASAP, but just hopping from country to country, from climate sure. to climate. Yeah. And when your guitar has to come out from the underbelly of an aeroplane and then two hours later it's supposed to be on a stage under lights, you really benefit from having a neck that doesn't care about these abrupt kind of changes in climate and humidity. And the roasted thing, coupled, I have to say, with a little graphite reinforcement in there, means it kind of feels like a classic guitar okay. neck. It still okay. makes the desired noises that you would want a maple neck to make. Mm -hmm. It's normal for me to go through a whole tour without having to adjust the truss rod at all. Uh, the, the, the last time I had to fly with the guitar, it landed on the, the baggage carousel and I opened the case just to check that nobody had uh, wounded the thing and it was still totally in tune. Okay, nice, nice. So it's reassuring. And for, um, for your tram and, and nut and all that sort of thing, so you've got a traditional nut locking tuners and... Is it a Floyd Rose style, but without the fine tuners? Is that what we're looking at there? Yeah, it's based on the original Floyds. Mm -hmm. There was like a, a Mark One Floyd Rose. I guess that's the one that someone like Eddie Van Halen yeah. would have had first before yep. they added the fine tuners, before they literally fine tuned. Um, <laughs> so it's um... I never quite, I never quite understood how you would make one of those work, one of those original Floyds, when you have the locking nut, because you yes, tune the guitar up, and as soon as you tighten the nut clamp, yep. one of the strings goes slightly sharp, the other one goes slightly flat, so there's always this element of guesswork. Um, but I, I really like the idea of locking the string at the bridge end, because I think that's where a lot of the friction problems come, if you're prone to violent overbending, okay, and I yep. plead guilty to that. <laughs> um, so I thought, what if we just clamp the string at that end, but let it move freely at the other end. And it, it's a good compromise. Again, that seems to be catching on a little bit here and there. And I'm delighted to see that because to me, it's the best of both worlds. And mm -hmm. um, the, the secret is just making sure the angle of the string as it crosses over the nut 
is uh, no more drastic than it needs to be. And then making sure the nut slots are cut well, having locking tuners, staggered locking tuners, and then lubricating the nut slots. And if you do that, it will stay in gen. I think I've read you've often just tooled with one guitar for, for flight reasons. So is that something you became good at, you know, setting up and keeping the thing in tune? Um, I, I suppose so. I try to be quite self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And like, if I had to do a refret, I would get a grown-up to do it. <laughs> um, but the, the basic stuff, yeah, I, I know what I need the guitar to do. The other thing I was, I got a little bit derailed there by my attention span uh, the, the bridge on the Charvel is based on the original Floyd Rose mm-hmm. a little anecdote for you for the prototype we actually did have an original Floyd Rose wow. without the fine tuners that is cool but they we are discovered super there were, at that time we discovered there are so many little things wrong with it because over the years the machinery they used to make those has been like worn down slightly the tolerances aren't quite as precise as they were mm-hmm. maybe in, in the early 80s so I was asking the Charvel guys, okay, well, this bridge is nearly there, but the string spacing isn't quite right, and the G-string's a little bit too high, and I'm not sure about the arm attachment. And I just whined about so many little details that in the end they said, we'll just make you your own bridge. How about that? <laughs> so the, the bridge you find on those Charvel signature guitars now, that's the only place you will find them. Okay. To me, it's like a refined version of the design that time forgot yep, from yep. back then. That's cool. I'm, I'm really curious as to why the, the single locking system, as in single at the bridge, hasn't taken off more than it has for all those reasons that you say. So it's cool that people can find one on your guitar, at least. Well, by virtue of your podcast, we get to brainwash the populace. And yes, that is the plan. That somebody the plan. out there will heed the logic <laughs> of all this. Awesome. Guthrie, I've got a couple of questions Um folks have sent in via Instagram if I could shoot a couple at you okay I've heard of Instagram yeah it's a, it's a thing um, now of course a lot of people have strange names so uh, someone called I ain't um, wants to know how can we learn to improvise better what's your advice there um, where to begin it is a big question I just <laughs> I just have to do my, my whole hippie thing, which is music is a language. Mm-hmm. And I really feel drawn towards the idea of making it feel like your first language. There's the language you learn when you're a baby. And that's the language where you feel the most comfortable expressing yourself. And often it's the language where you've learned the fewest grammatical rules. And it's the language where you never forced yourself to learn 20 new words a day mm-hmm. or learn the tenses of different verbs. You, you absorb your first language in a different way. And every time you learn something new, you're applying it. You're using it to communicate with other people. And I think as a mindset, if someone wants to get better at improvising, they should maybe start from the premise of what I'm trying to do here is get better at communicating with within this language, rather than I need to develop the following skill or the following technique. I mean, all of that stuff can go hand in hand, but often when people struggle with improvising, it's just because they haven't allowed themselves to to work on just playing naturally. Part of it is just being able to let yourself go and trust that the music you hear in your head is something that's worth 
playing to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Once you have that confidence, once you think there's a melody in my head that I would like the world to hear, that's the incentive to work more on your ear training, I guess. And to me, it was always an automatic thing for all of those language reasons. When I started playing after my, I'd learned my dad's first five chords, from that point on, I was just self-taught. All I could do was listen to the radio, listen to records, yeah. listen to anything I could find, and then just try to find shapes on the guitar that sounded similar to what I was listening to. And if you can copy all the sounds you hear around you, then you end up with this skill set that you can easily transfer to copying the sounds that are in your head. Um, so yeah, that's that's the number one thing, mm -hmm. I think. That's great. In general, I think every every guitar player ends up being the player they deserve to be, or the, the, the player that consciously or unconsciously they were trying to be. Uh, so if you value the idea of being a, a fluid improviser, like finding time for that in your practice schedule, just for working on your ear and trusting the logic of a good ear will make me a better communicator mm -hmm. of my own inner musical voice. And the rest is just time, I think. Awesome. That's a great, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, Tristan OR wants to know, um, how do you approach outside playing? Um, without overthinking it, really. Uh, my take on the, the 12 legal notes in Western music theory and all the other in-between notes, the microtonal things and all that, you can put any one of those notes at a, on a certain point along a spectrum with very obvious at one end of the spectrum. It's like completely consonant, but completely obvious. And then you move along the spectrum, you've got notes that are complementing the chord, but adding a little flavor. Mm -hmm. And then you move further and further along the spectrum until you get to, that's the ugliest note in the world. Why would you want to play that? <laughs> um, and it doesn't mean the notes at the first end of the spectrum are better than the other ones. Um, when, when you're creating a musical line, you're telling a story and it needs to have ups and downs. You need some obvious notes and some ugly notes and it's the journey between them that keeps the story of what you're playing compelling to listen to. Um, so I think everyone has an instinct for that when they're playing with the blues scale, you know, just a minor pentatonic with a flat five in there. Mm -hmm. The flat five is a pretty outside note. Sure. If yeah. you linger on it for too long, it sounds horrific. If you know how to use it to connect its neighboring notes so it's part of a journey, a little melodic journey with that kind of coloring, um, then you realize, okay, the flat five only sounds wrong when I treat it the same way I treat a root note. Okay. Yep. If I recognize what it's for, then I know where I can use it without appalling everyone. <laughs> so it, I think pretty much every guitar player can comfortably make musical sense using one pretty outside note. Sure. Yep. I think all the other stuff is just an extension of that principle. Mm -hmm. um, another big part of that battle, should you choose to explore that further, is just listening to outside notes being used competently by all the great musicians who've recorded stuff over the years. And you get more of a sense for this, this wrong note or this ugly note that I'm about to play. Will it sound cool or will it sound wrong? Um, Everyone's opinion is as valid as everyone else's opinion, but I think it really helps if you've listened to 10,000 reference points of other people 
using those outside notes. Uh, I think the trap there is that some guitar players who want to conquer everything will decide I need to work on my outside playing because outside playing is a thing, because it exists, or because somebody else told me I'm not a real guitar player because I'm not playing outside enough. Or if those if those are the kind of issues that attract you to playing outside, then you probably shouldn't do it. Whereas if you hear John Schofield, and this, this is exactly what happened to me years ago, I heard John Schofield for the first time. And my reaction was, I have no idea what he's doing. I have no idea why those notes work. But if I knew how those notes work, I know exactly how I would apply that. Mm-hmm. I was just excited awesome. by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's a pretty good answer. Guthrie, I feel like that's a really simple idea. Um, Tristan O.R. and the rest of us could spend the rest of our lives working on. But I love the uh, the flat five. That's that that makes it very real for a lot of us, and then we can take it from there. Oh, thanks for the question. I'm pretty out of practice with this stuff. <laughs> have a conversation like this for a couple of years. Well, it's been um, it's been great speaking with you today, Guthrie, and uh, amazing. And I'm so happy you're back on the road and doing these amazing things with Hans Zimmer and the Aristocrats coming up and uh, rocking out on that new Charvel and smashing it through all those Axe Effects patches you've been dialing in for the last two years. So good times in 2022, it sounds like. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, thank you again, and um, yeah, hope to oh, see you down here sometime and and say good day in person, perhaps. Fantastic. Until then. Okay. Thanks, Guthrie. All right. Cheers. All right. There you go. My conversation with Guthrie Govan. I so enjoyed that and I hope you did too. Lots of cool stuff happening for Guthrie this year. So check out the links in the show notes. My thanks to Fretboard Biology. These guys have been longtime supporters of the podcast. And uh, again, there are links in the show notes to check out that online guitar course. If you're new to the show, uh, the the whole premise is deep dive interviews like the one you've just heard, but also we have the iconic album series where I'm joined by my friends Rob Rhodes and Gabor Jessica. We discuss some of our favourite guitar records and we've also branched off into a couple of differently themed episodes like the greatest live albums, our favourite Beatles guitar moments, stuff like that to check out in our back catalogue and look forward to some of those episodes coming out soon as well. All right, my name's Matt Wakelin. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thank you again for joining me. And in the words of the great Michael Schenker, Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking indeed. We'll catch you next time.